Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the GynoBits podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Susie Weber, board-certified gynecologist and menopause specialist. On the GynoBits podcast, we'll cover women's health issues with a focus on menopause, bovovaginal conditions, and sexual health. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the GynoBits podcast today. Today, I have the pleasure of being with Carrie Daniels, who is a women's health physical therapist. Carrie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm excited to talk about how pelvic physical therapy can help women in all stages of their life. Yes. Hi, Dr. Weber. I am excited to be on your podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks so much for doing this and for informing women and all this important, important stuff. I got into PT pretty early in high school. I was pretty strong in science and math and uh, my mom was a nurse. And so I had thought about becoming a nurse and then I realized I was deathly afraid of needles. And so (laughs) I went the PT route, been a PT for a while now. And I started out in orthopedics and later got into lymphedema. And then about 12 years ago, right after I had my second baby, I got into the pelvic health route. So I had been seeing a lot of women postmenopausal and, you know, a lot of women with, I should say women and men with back pain and hip pain. And it seemed like there was that missing link. And it turns out that that missing link was the, the pelvic floor. And so I decided to, um, I had known some PTs that had gone down that road. And a while ago, nobody really even knew what pelvic health PT was, but right around that mark, that it started becoming more mainstream and people were hearing about it and more continuing education classes were coming out. Yeah, I started taking some basic pelvic health classes and I really, really liked it. And so I've been doing it ever since. I don't know how long I've been working with you, but it's been a number of years. What period of time or how many years ago do you think that really explosion of pelvic physical therapy happened. It just seems like over the last maybe five years or more, really, we've started to look towards pelvic PT more and more people are finding out about it. But it seemed like I almost never referred anybody for pelvic floor physical therapy. And now I, I, I do a ton of referrals for that. Yeah. Now kind of funny, a lot of my patients, they either hear about it from their OBGYN or their primary sometimes there. It's so prevalent on TikTok and um, Instagram. And so they hear it, you know, they're seeing it and they're hearing it through social media. And I think, which is great. I'm super excited about that. So they hear it, they hear about it and they know that it's important, but yeah, I would definitely say in the last five to eight years, it's is really where it's exploded. I'm happy about it. It's helped a tremendous number of my patients. I think everybody after they have a pregnancy should be referred for pelvic physical therapy evaluation and just get a good regimen to try to maintain that pelvic health going forward in their life. What exactly is the pelvic floor? How would you define that? It's a group of muscles, ligaments, and connective tissues that make up a hammock between the pubic synthesis and the front and the tailbone in the back. So a lot of times I describe it as the bowl, the bottom of the pelvis. And so you have the pelvic floor on the bottom and then you have your diaphragm on the top and you have your abs in the front and the back muscles. And that makes up that inner core. So the, the bottom you know, is the, the important piece that supports the organs, the bladder, the colon, the rectum, the vagina, the uterus, and it helps with stabilization. So it's a huge stabilizer, you know, helping to prevent back pain and hip pain along with the, the all the other muscles and the diaphragm. 
And then it also is important with continents, obviously, because so there's three holes in the pelvic floor, right? So we have our um, urethra, our vagina, and our rectum. And so the sphincters in the pelvic floor muscles help maintain continence. And then it's important with sexual function as well. Great description. What does a hypertonic pelvic floor look like? Or I hear that term a lot. Yeah. So hypertonic or overactive, a lot of people say. So hypertonic pelvic floor muscles are associated a lot of times with increased stress. And so a lot of times there's hypertonic muscles that are too tight. And so those muscles in the pelvic floor, they need to relax all the way so that they can contract all the way. So a lot of times I use the use my arm muscle to demonstrate, you know, with like your biceps. So if they're contracted all the way, they can't go any further. So, you know, if they're tight, they can't get that contraction. And so um, we need to be able to learn and teach patients how to relax those muscles all the way so that they can contract those muscles all the way. So a lot of people don't know. That's a big, big thing that I find is that a lot of patients have hypertonic pelvic floor muscles and they have no idea until somebody actually tells them and, you know, either an OBGYN or a pelvic floor therapist says, you know, this doesn't feel normal. This, these muscles should be much more relaxed and, and they're doing way too much. And do they come in with all types of symptoms or would you say there's primary symptoms that you see with the hypertonic floor? Biggest symptoms they'll have is, so they'll have dyspareunia, which is pain with intercourse. So, um, and that can happen after a baby or sometimes, you know, late in life after menopause. So there's dyspareunia and then um, just pelvic pain, general pelvic pain. Some patients, you know, they've never had pain in that area and all of a sudden they start experiencing it sometimes intermittently and sometimes constant. And then the other thing that presents usually with a hypertonic pelvic floor is constipation. So you need to be able to relax your pelvic floor muscles to empty all the way. You know, some patients that are changing their diet and they've tried everything and exercise and water and fiber, they're finding that that's the piece that's missing is that they're not, they're not relaxing their pelvic floor all the way to be able to empty fully. Yeah, that's interesting. We see that a lot more in midlife perimenopause and with the change in the bowel habits as well. That's interesting. What about a hypotonic pelvic floor? Is that a thing? Definitely. So that would be an underactive pelvic floor. So those are the two big categories, overactive and underactive. So when those muscles are underactive, there's significant weakness, and that's where you're going to see leakage. So whether it's urinary leakage or fecal leakage, that's where that, that's what you'll see with an underactive pelvic floor. And then also prolapse pelvic organ prolapse. So when, you know, it's usually the bladder mostly is what I see. And then um, it can be the rectum, it can be the, the vagina, their uterus or the, the small intestine. But with those underactive pelvic floor muscles that aren't doing enough and aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, those are the, those are the most common symptoms that you'll see. I do talk about pelvic physical therapy for my patients with prolapse, but I always wonder, is there a point of no return where you think there's a certain age or a certain severity of prolapse that won't respond to PT? Or do you feel like there's a role for that That's funny. across all think... age groups and severity? Yeah, definitely. So I used to think there was definitely a cutoff age where there's no way that pelvic floor therapy will help. But I've been proven wrong with that because I've had patients in their late 80s or early 90s 
that have come in for PT and that have shown improvement, which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, definitely if the protrusion is outside of the vagina, then most likely they're going to need surgery. But with patients with a stage one or stage two prolapse, I don't think it's ever too late to work on your pelvic floor muscles and try try to get them stronger to help support those organs and avoid surgery if possible. That's great to hear because a lot of times at a certain age, a woman won't necessarily want to have surgery at that point, but the prolapse and bladder symptoms can really be impacting her daily activities and quality of life as well. Do you see any difference and maybe not, but in women that might come to you in those later ages, if they do better or worse with estrogen therapy, or have you seen a difference if someone comes in and they're using estrogen versus not using vaginal estrogen and, mm-hmm. I, you know, maybe out of your scope a little bit, but just kind of curious because I never see a problem with continuing vaginal estrogen for the health of the pelvic tissues. Yeah, no, definitely. And if they're not using estrogen, sometimes I'll, I'll ask them to talk to their doctor about that because a lot of times as you get older, you know, with the decreased estrogen, those tissues are thinning and they're not as healthy and, and spongy and moist as they should be. So estrogen is definitely helpful and helpful in that pelvic floor function and being able to contract all the way and relax all the way and move better. I would agree. What does an an initial evaluation with you look like? Because patients always wonder what their first appointment is going to be like and and what types of activities and things they'll be doing at PT Mm -hmm. with a pelvic floor specialist. When physicians and providers tell them so that they know what to expect, because I've definitely had some patients come in and they're they're surprised, but I think they're pleasantly surprised. So (laughs) it's very different than going into an OBGYN. There's there's no stirrups. I don't have stirrups in my office. There's no, um, we don't use speculums. So it's different, but they're going to come in and we have them fill out a pretty significant history. So medical history, finding out you know any surgeries that they've had, their history with babies, you know, if they've had C-sections or vaginal births, and if they tore, and then going over their bladder habits, if they leak, if they, um, you know, how they leak, is it that they're not being able they're not making it to the bathroom or is it that they're leaking when they're coughing, laughing, sneezing, they're wearing pads and how many pads they're having to go through every day. Um, and then we go through what they're drinking and their, their diet, not so much, you know, sometimes I'll go into it more later if they're having issues with bowel leakage, fecal leakage, but we'll just go through how much caffeine and alcohol they're drinking and if that's affecting their bladder. And then talking about intercourse and if they're having any pain with intercourse or if they're having any pain overall in their back or in their hips and when they're noticing that. So we go through the pretty extensive medical history and then we do basic, basically an ortho evaluation. So just looking at their posture and their breathing and their mobility and their strength overall. And then with permission, we do an internal exam. So with that, Um, They do have to get undressed and we're checking the pelvic floor muscles and the the strength, the coordination, the endurance, and then also checking for any trigger points and then checking for prolapse as well. Wow. Yeah. Sounds pretty extensive. I do tell them that there will be an internal exam at some point, but that there is quite a bit of history taking and discussion and making sure that they're comfortable before you know, I know you don't jump right in with the vaginal exam, but do you prepare them so they know what's coming? 
And then once you do your assessment, what type of follow-up schedule do you usually recommend? I'm sure that depends on what the condition is that you're treating, but what does a basic follow-up regimen look like with you and then maybe after therapy is over? Yeah. So and something that I forgot to include on the first day that I see them, one of the most important things that I want to get out from, from them is their goal or goals from PT. So I think that's super important because that varies significantly with patients. But um, yeah, so everybody's pretty individual. And so as far as follow-up, it depends. Some patients only want to come in, you know, if it's after a delivery of a baby, maybe they'll only want to come in for two to four sessions just to make sure that their pelvic floor is where it should be. And then other patients can come in. So the, the least I would see them is once a week for probably up to four sessions. And then the most would be twice a week for up to maybe 12 weeks. Or sometimes I have patients even just come in for follow-ups every few months, just, you know, get them on their home programs and make sure that they're doing well and see if I could progress them or take things away, see what we need to do with those spread out follow-ups. And then they, I'm sure have the home regimen. I, I hear that a a lot from patients that have been through pelvic PT that they really saw great improvements when they were doing their regimen and their exercises, but then life happens and they kind of fall off of the protocol and need to just get back to it, like exercise of any kind, really. What would you recommend for, so we talked about pregnancy and deliveries and things like that. Is there any kind of basic exercises, strengthening exercises that you would recommend while a woman is pregnant? Yeah, while they're pregnant, you have this growing baby inside of you. And so you have you have to really work on just keeping keeping up your, your posture and keeping the core strong. So everything's gonna want to stretch out, right? And you have you know those ligaments that are really loose. And so it's really important to work on the muscles throughout your whole pregnancy. So there are tons of, and I, I use YouTube all the time with my patients. I I swear there's so many great videos on there for prenatal strengthening. And so I think strengthening and, and stretching, doing yoga is, is great also, but um, definitely working on the endurance and the strength of your pelvic floor muscles is super important. And then keeping the, the core and the back muscles really as strong as possible so that when you, once you have your baby and you're going to be lifting that big baby, then <laughs> you have that support. How do you keep your core strong when you have this growing melon in your belly? Mm -hmm. How can they do that? Because I always warn patients not to be doing the typical ab strengthening exercises like crunches and things like that, because I don't really, I don't want them pushing against those rectus muscles and getting a separation of those. What kind of exercises are good for that? Or a lot of the exercises are done lying on your back. And so we all have heard of Kegels. And this is where you have to make sure that you're doing Kegels correctly, because a lot of times patients are doing Kegels incorrectly. So yeah, that's when you have, so we talked about the pelvic floor and we have those muscles in between the pubic bone and the tailbone. So we have those sitting at the bottom of your core. When you take a deep breath in, your diaphragm is going to descend and those pelvic floor muscles are going to go down and out. And then when you exhale, you're going to get that big breath to come out and the pelvic floor muscles are going to come up and in with that exhale. You can add on to that then. So you start with the basic Kegel and usually I'll have patients hold it for five seconds and then 
work up to holding them for 10 seconds just to work on that muscular endurance. And then you're going to add on to that. So you would do a Kegel with a knee lift, alternating knee lifts or alternating leg lifts or letting your legs go out. And then you're going to start adding in with the pelvic floor, you're going to add in the strengthening of the transverse abdominus muscle. So that inner, inner abdominal muscle that wraps around like a corset. So the, the verbal cueing for that is pretend like you're zipping up a tight pair of pants. <laughs> um, or sometimes I say like, pretend like your belly button is a drain in a bathtub and that you're, you know, trying to get that water into the drain, but without doing too much obliques, you want to really try to focus on that inner, inner core muscle, the TA, and then you're going to put those muscles together, the transverse abdominus and the pelvic floor muscles with the exhale. So you're going to really try to focus on bringing everything in. And then you can try lifting an arm over your head and you can try bridging with that. And then usually I'll have them do side-lying exercises as well and um, exercises in all fours. So on hands and knees. Do you do similar things postpartum or do you incorporate mm -hmm. some different? Postpartum, unless they have diastasis. So the mm -hmm. widening of that linea alba, some people, you know, some patients have that. And then we have to be a little bit more careful and really try to work on that core and trying to bring those muscles together. But similar things after, yep. And then we can do more squats. And I mean, we do squats when they're pregnant as well, but um, more functional activities and working on really focusing on lifting properly so that, you know, when they're lifting their babies in and out of the crib, they're holding their core tight. Yeah, that's so important. And also, I think when you ask, after you have your kid carrying them around on your hip, my kids never wanted to be in any of the little carriers. I was carrying them around on my hip. And I feel like the overall body mechanics as a new mom and old mom, just, um, they're not good. We don't do a good job at maintaining a good posture and whatnot. Are there any misconceptions about pelvic floor physical therapy that you would want to clear up or anything maybe you've seen on social media where you think, Ugh, that's not right. So the big one is the kegels. And so that's hard because people, you know, will hear just do 200 kegels a day or something like that. And so if they're doing them incorrectly, it's, they're just wasting their time. And so I've had a lot of women, especially, you know, everybody, you know, especially new moms want to multitask. So they're telling me I'm, I'm doing them in the car at a stoplight. I've heard on TikTok to just do 200 a day as you're sitting at, at a red light and um, get them done there but they're actually doing them incorrectly. And that's the biggest one, I think, is just making sure that you're making good use of your time and doing the right thing. And, you know, I even tell some patients, just even if it's 10 minutes a day, you don't have to spend an hour doing these, but just 10 minutes a day. And some of the studies show that you really have to just work up with, the, with that strengthening. And as soon as you plateau, you get to that point where you have a decent, muscle contraction in the pelvic floor that as long as you just do 30 a day, you can maintain that strength. So I think that's good for patients to hear, to know that this isn't a lifelong thing that I have to spend routinely every day doing. As long as I'm just doing 30 a day, I can maintain that strength. Like so many things, the consistency, it's not a huge time commitment, but just doing it more days than not is going to get them relief. And I remember the old 
wisdom with regards to counseling about kegels. Somehow women would think that they should be sitting on the toilet and emptying their bladder and then stopping their stream of urine. So I think that's been a really big misconception over the years that hopefully we're starting to dispel that actually, no, that can create more bladder and pelvic floor dysfunction if you're just sitting there on the toilet, voiding and stopping and voiding and stopping. And I'll see a lot of women in my office, especially with complaints like bladder and prolapse. And I try to have them contract their pelvic floor and they're either contracting their facial muscles, they're squeezing their buttocks or their legs or their abs. And so a lot of women aren't even targeting those muscles at all. So I, a lot of times I'll just tell them, look, you need to, you probably need to feel inside the vagina, put your fingers inside and see, am I really contracting those muscles that I want to be contracting? Otherwise, like you said, if they're just kind of sitting there doing the exercises wrong, they're not going to get any benefit and could be causing some harm. Do you have any over-the-counter devices that you recommend, or do you have any thoughts about where a a woman could find evidence-based information about any of these over-the-counter monitors? I know there are a lot of pressure monitors they can put in the vagina that hook up to their smartphones. I don't know any off the top of my head. Yeah. So my first uh, words of wisdom would be definitely to see a pelvic floor therapist, (laughs) because I've had lots of patients that see something and they'll just go out immediately and buy it and it might not be the right device for them. So um, just seeing the pelvic floor therapist and making sure that they're on the right track and using the right device is super important. There are two different kinds of at-home devices. So the first kind would be something that you insert. So two that are at the top of my head are Kegel and LV. And so these are devices that you can pair with your smartphone and you put it into your vagina and some of them, they fill up with a little bit of air. And then when you contract, they're sensing that squeeze. And so it'll show you on your smartphone through an app, how hard you're squeezing. And then it'll have games and it'll, you know, they have timers and it'll remind you to do your exercises. So some of my patients though, they come in with those, they've purchased them and they've started using them, but they're not getting any contraction in their pelvic floor muscles. So really it's just a big waste. And so they have not done the research and they haven't put their finger in to even see if they can feel a contraction. So what those patients would need is something that's more of an electric stim unit. So there are some out there that you insert and instead of feeling the contraction, it's actually sending out a little bit of yeast impulse to try to contract those muscles. And as I always say, it's to wake those muscles up. So some people have to start with those devices just to even make that mind-body connection and to wake the muscles up before they even think about going to one of the other kind of devices. That E-STEM, is it helpful for prolapse and overactive bladder? Do you use it for all types of pelvic floor stuff or are there certain? mm -hmm. So in the beginning, we were talking about overactive versus underactive um, and hypertonic Mm -hmm. versus hypotonic pelvic floor muscles. And so those devices would be for those underactive pelvic floor muscles. So usually, not always, but usually with prolapse situation, those muscles are underactive. And so that's what they're And do you, do you see with that hypotonic floor and maybe using those e-stim devices or really strengthening those pelvic floor muscles, do you see for patients that parlays into better sexual function and orgasm and things like that? Definitely. Yeah. So those two are directly correlated, improved sexual function because you have improved blood flow in that area and then increased orgasm. So those two definitely go hand in hand. 
on the flip side, if someone has dyspareunia or they're having pain with intercourse or penetration or other sexual activity, what does that regimen look like? And of course, I know it varies based on individual and what the problem is. I'm just curious how that might be approached because that's a lot of women don't bring that up unless I ask about it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you definitely have to ask about that because a lot of patients aren't willing to admit that that's an issue. So dyspareunia, so pain with intercourse can happen. And I've seen this after childbirth or later after menopause and that it's more common than you would think. So with dyspareunia, the muscles get tight around whatever's entering in. So some people, you know, even just with an insertion of a tampon or something, they have pain with that insertion. And so um, with that, the the home regimen would be, um, usually I have them do some manual therapy and try to work on those tight areas and work on the trigger points that you find in the pelvic floor muscles. And then they can start with a dilator program. So there are dilators, you know, they come from small to large, just like those Russian dolls. (laughs) start with the smallest one or you start where they are. And then um, basically what they have to do is put those dilators in and then instead of working, so they're not working on kegels, they're not working on the strengthening, they're working on reverse kegels. So more so of the breathing and the meditation and the down training and trying to get those muscles to relax around having something in the vagina. You can use dilators. And then the other thing you can use at home, there's a product called a pelvic wand. And so they put a little bit of lubricant on and they're using that wand to go into the pelvic floor muscles and just press down and try to release the tension in those muscles. I have a patient right now who is in her fifties and she's menopausal and has not had any problems historically with sexual activity and vaginal penetration in in the last six to 12 months, same partner, no issues. She has developed pain with intercourse, but she does fine with exams. She's had a pelvic ultrasound. She's done fine with all these things. So she's just gotten probably into this pain cycle or something hurt. And maybe she's just in that situation where her pelvic floor is contracting or something like that. So I'm really trying to get her into, to see you because everything, when I see her, I can poke and prod around in there, probably be inside the vagina and do whatever I need to do. And everything looks normal, but do you see patients like that a lot where they'll come to see you? And I haven't been able to reproduce her pain or anything in the office? All the time. (laughs) I see those patients a lot. And so we use something called surface EMG. So we can use pads externally to see if those muscles, you know, like we talked about, those muscles need to relax all the way. And a lot of times they think those muscles are relaxed, but they're not. Definitely that patient would benefit from PT. So just working on the breathing, you know, really working on making sure she's getting that diaphragm to descend all the way and getting those pelvic floor muscles to descend all the way. And like you said, there's a huge um, mental component to it and that pain cycle. So I think once the patient feels that there's pain with intercourse, then each time that can cycle and get worse. And so really trying to break that pain cycle and getting them to, you know, mind over body and getting them to relax and turning that around is really important. So sometimes with those patients, I'll have them also see a mental health therapist because I'm not trained in that, but the two together can work really well, the PT and the, and the mental health therapist. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I was also going to ask you about vaginal Valium. There aren't really any definitive studies that say that vaginal Valium helps. 
What do you think in your patients, if you're working, especially with a dyspareunia patient, do you think that that helps with therapy and, and maybe with sexual function afterwards? Yeah, I've had mixed results with vaginal Valium. Um, so that's a suppository that they insert and um, it's local. So a lot of patients are afraid that, you know, I don't want to use Valium because then I'm not even going to be able to know what I'm doing, but it's, it's local. So it's not going to affect the whole body. It's not my first go-to, but I definitely will mention it if we've done therapy for say six to eight visits and we're not seeing results. So it's, it's out there. And, um, but I'd say I'd give it a 50, 50 on that. Cause I've had patients that they've tried it and it hasn't worked, but with some patients, it definitely has. Yeah. I was just curious. I don't, I don't prescribe it much. I've seen mixed results as well. And then with anything we prescribe, certainly there can be a placebo effect. So if you think something might be working, it might work. So potentially could be that. Do you have any advice for women heading into perimenopause and menopause about how to keep the pelvic floor strong or avoid back pain and things like that, or anything that we can do for our bodies? Things that go along with that are vaginal dryness and hormonal changes. So talking to your doctor about if you need to take estrogen, there's that. And then vaginal moisturizers are super important. So those, those are key. And then also with the decreased bone density with menopause, I think that's important to mention, just keeping up with your weight-bearing exercises and resistance training, and then really making sure you're working on your posture. So I know I need to be reminded of that daily, you know, pretending like that string is pulling you up through the top of your head and keeping those shoulders back is important. And then as far as the core and the, the pelvis goes, you know, really making sure that you're doing your ab exercises and your back exercises and the pelvic floor strengthening exercises. So you want to really keep the strength and the stabilization there so that if you do develop any kind of osteopenia or osteoporosis, so that at least you have that core stability and then keeping your pelvic floor muscles strong so that you're preventing any kind of prolapse or leakage. I would say those are all important. So mobility and stability, <laughs> those two have to be first and foremost. Yeah. And just trying to maintain your functionality so that you can push and pull and lift and bend and stoop and do all of the normal daily activities without injuring yourself once you become older. And we carry so much stress in our shoulders. We're always hunched over our laptops, our computers, we're driving all the time. And um, is there any kind of stretching regimen or anything? Do you think that that's helpful as, as well or... Yeah, I pretty much have every one of my patients, I suggest, I don't, I don't make them get it, but I suggest that they buy a 36 inch foam roller. I think it's one of the mm -hmm. best pieces of equipment out there and you could get it on Amazon for, I think it's $20. <laughs> so it's inexpensive, <laughs> but just lying on that foam roller with it vertically underneath your spine is so good with your arms up in the letter Y, just to stretch out the anterior chest muscles and the pecs super important. So that's probably one of my biggest suggestions that I mentioned to pretty much every patient. Well, this has been great. Gosh, yeah. Sorry. I was trying to pick your brain. Like what should we do about our body at every stage of life? And what, what can we do to maintain function forever? I, the older I've gotten, I realized that the exercise and strength and, you know, I've been through physical therapy myself and it was just, it was amazing and so helpful. I just feel like it's been an under neglected part of healthcare for so long. And I'm glad that we're starting to see people utilizing it more, especially with when it comes to the 
women's health arena. Is there anything else you want to mention today or gosh, I feel like I really picked your brain, but you gave so much helpful information. Anything else you would want people to know about physical therapy or women's health physical therapy? I would just say if you have any doubts, if you should go in for women's health physical therapy, do it. (laughs) You should do it. I've had so many patients say, my gosh, I've learned so much. And I mean, even there's so much online, but just, I think, going to somebody in person and really telling your story and you know everybody's individual, like I mentioned, and there are things that you probably don't even realize that you could be doing wrong that you are. Um, and then just having somebody just reinforce that and let you know what you can be doing differently as you move along in your life is really, really important. So, so that's what I would say. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Carrie, so much for your time and expertise. I learned so much and I know that my listeners are going to love this podcast and learn so much as well. Tell people where they can find you if they want to work with you. Obviously they need a referral to get to you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Weber. Um, I'm at Littleton Hospital, so which is now Advent Health. And so my email is kerri.daniels at adventhealth.com. Thank you for joining me for today's GynoBits podcast. If you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, and share. Just a reminder that this is not medical advice and you should consult with your personal physician. Also, the opinions and views are mine only and do not reflect those of my employer. If you would like more information or to consult with me, please go to my webpage, healthiermenopause.com. You can also find me on Instagram, at Healthier Menopause and Facebook, Menopause MD. 